Hello, Metro Augusta. This is Janice Allen Jackson welcoming you to the July 6th edition of Local Matters, a show designed to make you a more confident voter and a more engaged citizen. Today's show, as always, is brought to you by Janice Allen Jackson and Associates, and Local Matters is a service of my consulting firm. Today, we embark upon a two-part series on crime and the role of the district attorney in ensuring justice for all. Our guest is none other than Jared T. Williams, the district attorney on the Augusta Judicial Circuit. But before we get into that interview, I have to do what I always do, and that is to remind you of how to listen to and share local matters with everyone who needs to know about the great information we provide. Obviously, there is the radio version on WKCK every Wednesday afternoon at 1.30. And there is a podcast version, which is the same audio, but on the podcast version, you can pick it up anytime you want to. I am available on the following platforms, being Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. So if you're familiar with those terms, you know how to go to those platforms, search local matters and find the podcast. However, if you're not so familiar with how to do that, there are two other ways that you can find the podcast version. Easiest way is to go to my website, which is JaniceAllenJackson.com weebly.com where there is a local matters tab just click on the local matters tab and you can find and share any episode there also we recently started a local matters podcast facebook page i have been pleasantly surprised at the number of you who've already liked that page but of course i can always go for more likes because i want to spread this message as far as i can I post all episodes there on that page for easy access if you are on Facebook. But if you're not on Facebook, you can always go to my website as I described earlier. Also new in the Local Matters land is the fact that there is now a Local Matters of Georgia YouTube channel. In fact, the interview that we're going to do today with Jared Williams is going to be on that YouTube channel in its entirety. And every now and then I have a guest that is so uh, special and has so much to say uh, that I don't think we can fit it into a short uh, episode. So we're going to do those for our longer form interviews. Uh, the entire interview is a little over 40 minutes. So please go to the Local Matters of Georgia YouTube channel. In fact, subscribe there too. So I know that you're interested. Uh, and uh, please feel free to give me any feedback on those to let me know if there is uh, something that you'd like me to go into depth on. After I finish this interview, you know, I finish them, then I listen to them, and then we get them all edited and prepared to post. And I, after I listened to this one, I thought to myself, this guest, Jared Williams, is probably one of the smartest folks in all of the state of Georgia. So this episode encompasses all of the things that I enjoy. First, having such a smart guest. Next, education about local government. 
government, the basic things that you don't necessarily pick up in the newspaper or on TV. And it's a thoughtful conversation about how we don't have to do things the way that we always did them. So please sit back, listen, and enjoy uh, this opportunity to learn more about the criminal justice system, the role that the DA plays, and how we might be able to modify that system to get better results at the end of the day in terms of increasing our public safety. Local Matters family, we have a treat today in the form of Jared T. Williams. He is our district attorney on the Augusta Judicial Circuit, which encompasses Richmond and Burke counties. Um, before we get started into some of the uh, real deep issues surrounding crime on this judicial circuit, uh, I wanna point out a, a little known fact about Jared and myself and the connection between us. In fact, it's so little known that I don't think Jared knew about it. <laughs> but uh, Jared's grandfather, J.C. Williams, and my father, Callaway Allen, were close friends many decades ago. So our families go back and have a long history. And I'm very pleased to see that the grandson of J.C. Williams is playing such an important role in our community. Thanks for being on, on local matters <laughs> today. Well, thank you for having me. Do you know what the C stands for in J.C.? I do not. I don't know what the J stands for, to be honest. It's James Calloway. So I didn't realize that they had the same name, too. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that all these years. I did not know that. And I yeah. wonder if my father even knew, um, because I, I think uh, the origin of the relationship, did he work at Savannah Riverside by any chance? He did. He did. Okay. He worked security. Okay. When, my father when he wasn't working on cars. Right. And see, that's the connection I'm familiar with is the cars. Uh, my father worked at Savannah Riverside from 1954 until he retired in 1986. Wow. And uh, JC would work on our cars and my father would come paint his house. Oh, that was yeah. their trade-off. So, because uh, yeah, my father worked full time at Savannah Riverside, and then his part time job was doing some house painting. So, uh, so yeah, I practically grew up in that house off of Wooten Road. So, yeah, that I, is um, exactly it. So, yeah, you saw some of my father's handiwork when you were over there. <laughs> All right, so glad again to have you here. I want to, as always, help our listeners and now our viewers. Uh, just understand what local and state governments do for them. And a key role there is the role of the district attorney. Um, I always also like for our guests to explain a little bit about the arc of their careers so that people understand how they got to where they are. So if you could just kind of talk about how you prepare to be district attorney of the Augusta Judicial Circuit. Sure. Well, as everyone's already learned by now, I'm from Augusta, born and raised. Um, my, my dad's from Augusta, my mom's from Thompson, so we're a pretty local family. Um, and I, I grew up here. I went off to school. I came back and 
Um, well, I really came back as an intern for the DA's office. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do legally, um, but I got an internship at the DA's office. And during that summer, you know, I was, um, I was working and I was coming into court and I was getting to see cases and I got to watch a trial. It was a five day trial of a guy who had come from Atlanta. Uh, he was actually dodging his probation officer in Atlanta. He comes down here and just sets the city on fire. He's doing armed robbery after armed robbery and it culminates in a murder. And so we have this five day trial and I'm watching it and I'm just enraptured. And I knew from that moment on, um, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a, a, a trial attorney and particularly I wanted to be a prosecutor. And you know, I went to law school down in Florida. I, I had the bright idea that if I was gonna put myself through law school, I should do it on the beach, um, which was all great while I was there um, and a little less great now that I'm paying it back. Um, but I, I was trying to decide, should I stay in Florida? Should I stay in the city that I'm loving or should I go back home and serve? And I knew that because I wanted to be a prosecutor, there was nowhere else to serve but here in Augusta. Um, and so I did that for several years. I used to get to the courthouse at 8.30, I'd work all day. I'd, uh, at five o'clock, I'd rush out of here, I'd take off my suit, I'd put on an apron and I'd go wait tables. Um, so it, it made for some, some long time, some long evenings. Um, but eventually I decided that I had another passion, which was language, and I wanted to uh, learn how to speak Spanish. And so I moved from the, the States. I moved out to Spain. I, I lived there as a teacher for two years. Um, I came back, opened a defense practice, had my own practice for about 12 minutes. And then a local firm snatched me up and, and I, I said, you know what, y'all's phone rings more than mine. So let me go do that. Um, and then throughout the course of, of my time, both as a prosecutor and then as a defense attorney, there were some things about the criminal justice system that didn't sit right with me. There were some, some limitations to the system um, that didn't sit right to me. And then there were some, some attitudes and some processes that I thought were damaging um, to certain communities. And so um, I prayed about it. I labored over it, but eventually I decided to run for office. I run for the district attorney's office. Um, I ran in 2020. Everything was going great. I'm raising money. I'm having events, have a great big fish fry. And then the world ends in March and <laughs> everyone's locked in their house. Uh, so I um, had an interesting COVID campaign, um, but we did emerge victorious. I won in November of 2020 and I took office in January of last year. All right, very good. And as you talk about that, that's your particular path to the district attorney's office. Um, in terms of what the law requires to, to meet the minimum qualifications to run for DA, are there any qualifications? Well, you have to be a barred attorney. You have to have lived in the circuit for three years preceding. Um, and I want to say you have to have practiced for five years, but I, I'm not certain on that. Okay. okay. <laughs> Whatever the qualifications were, I met them. So you met them. I didn't have to All worry right. about them too much. And no age requirements on that, right? No, I was there's an age requirement. Yeah. Well, so I am the youngest DA in the state of Georgia as it stands currently. Um, but what at least I was when I started. Now I think I age about 10 years a day. So <laughs> I think I'm the oldest. <laughs> <laughs> which which is the perfect segue into the next thing that I had planned to ask you. Um, you were you wanted this office because there were some changes that you wanted to make. You were successful in earning the office. 
And now uh, you're there. And I think we would all just want to know, it would help us understand what exactly does a district attorney do all day? Sure. So the DA is the chief law enforcement officer for the circuit. Our circuit comprises Richmond and Burke counties. And what that means is law enforcement goes and, and makes investigations, um, makes arrests, and then they send their file, their warrants, everything they have on the case to us. And we make a determination. Well, really, we make two uh, initial determinations. The first is, did law enforcement follow the law themselves? Uh, we can't live in a society that works for the people if we're not making sure that the people who are in charge of enforcing the law follow the law. Secondly, we look at, is there a reasonable basis to believe that the person accused of the crime actually did it? That's what a lot of people refer to as probable cause. After making that determination, if, if we find that, that one, the law has been followed, and two, that we think we have the right person, there's probable cause that we have the right person, then the prosecutor, the DA, has a world of discretion as to what happens next. We decide whether to ask a judge to hold someone in jail pending trial or to grant them a bond. We decide whether to file formal charges like an indictment or an accusation, or um, if we want to dismiss the charges. We decide if a case should be pled out and make a recommendation to the judge, or do we want to push a case to trial? Um, all of those are determinations that are made day in and day out. And the idea is this, those decisions have to be made with an idea of not just what happened in this case, but what's best for public safety overall. Um, and so as DA, I set a number of community safety priorities, things that I felt were the most important objectives that we had to, to work on. Um, and I, there's no secret to it. My main concerns are violent crime, and crimes against women and children. And so um, we, we set out the priorities and we set about creating an office and an office culture that focuses on ensuring that we are appropriately tough where it's necessary, but also understanding that we need a system that not just punishes people and not just holds people back, but actually propels them forward. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask you something I didn't plan to ask, but when you talked about crimes uh, against women and children that hit home with me, um, I remember a case long ago, uh, many years ago, I was living in another city at the time, where there were a couple of young girls, and when I say young girls, 12, 13 years old, who accused... Um, an adult male of molestation, an adult male in a position of authority of molestation. Those girls went to court, uh, told their stories, and the defense attorney, who was by all accounts extremely well-skilled, uh, was successful in getting the male in a position of authority off scot-free, never served a day in jail. That had an impact on me because I saw, well, if these young girls can come forward and have the courage to say what they said, and then basically they were not believed at all, does that place a chilling effect on the next young girl who, has, who feels she's been victimized 
And does that mean that she's just going to keep quiet because you don't believe anything's going to happen? It absolutely has a chilling effect. And now I want to be clear, the system is meant to work um, so that the innocent person does not get his liberty taken. So I'm never going to question a jury's decision making. Um, but here's the issue. We know that women and children oftentimes do not disclose the things that happen to them. Um, and, and I mean, and if you think about it practically, if someone asked me to tell a room of strangers about my last sexual experience, I wouldn't want to do it. And it was consensual. <laughs> so imagine the worst event that ever took place in your life, a, a molestation or, or an assault on your bodily autonomy. And you are asked to tell an investigator, you're asked to tell a nurse, um, a, a forensic interviewer, a judge, a prosecutor, 12 strangers in a jury box, all of them, and it's on the record. Um, of course, there's a chilling effect. Of course, people don't opt to be in that position. Um, and so we have to be careful with the way that we prosecute these cases. Um, oftentimes, we have to make determinations on will a trial of this case create a further re-traumatization of our victim? Is there a way to resolve this case that spares the victim from having to come into court? Um, and so every time that we have a jury find not guilty on a case like that, it's difficult because it does have that chilling effect. And because that young lady or that child does not feel as though they were believed and that makes them less likely to come forward but it also makes other people in the community less likely to come forward. Um, and, and that's a shame. I think the process itself is just really tough. Um, and so that re that results in so many people keeping things to themselves. And as you speak of ways to, to handle those cases, might that then be a case in order to prevent the victim, maybe a, a child, from having to tell the story over and over again, to experience that trauma over and over again. Is that a case sometimes you might ask for a plea deal on in order to prevent that person from having to come into court? And how do you decide if that's what you're gonna do? I'll tell you exactly how we decide. So we do an evaluation, not just of the evidence, but of the impact on the victim. Um, because at the end of the day, we serve, it's funny because my, uh, my division chief of special victims just walked past. Uh, so, um, well, let me just kind of start there. So we created a unit, a special victims unit, where we have prosecutors who are dedicated solely to sex crimes, crimes against women and children, and crimes against the vulnerable and the elderly. Um, and that allows for a certain level of specialization where our prosecutors are at, operating at the highest level. Um, it also means that there's more chance for collaboration between the sheriff's office and our other investigating agencies and the prosecutors who will be handling the case. It means that our victim advocates and our prosecutors are in the best position to help victims because they specialize in those matters. Um, and when we're making the determination on should this case go to trial or should it be resolved, that's a question on the evidence, the likelihood of success at trial. Um, and whether we can actually meet the ends of justice without re-traumatizing our victim. There are some times when we can't. It sometimes it's not an option. I cannot get a sentence that protects the community unless I bring this child into court to testify against them. And that's unfortunate. 
Um, but we're always going to choose public safety. Um, but with that, if we can spare our victims, we try to. Okay. Thank you for that, that explanation. Um, and do you actually go into court? Do you prosecute cases yourself or do you leave that to your, your uh, team of attorneys in your office? Ask me what I did this morning. <laughs> so <laughs> this morning I started this morning, off, <laughs> this morning I started off the day with a bond hearing. So um, on Friday mornings, anyone who's in jail who has not had their case heard by a judge um, has the opportunity to ask for a bond. Uh, and I've handled one of those myself. Now I usually jump in when I need to jump in and not necessarily um, when it's when my coming in might be a hindrance to the teams that are working and, and dedicated to the cases on, on that caseload. Um, so to answer your question, yes, I do. I, I try to make it to court as often as possible. Um, unfortunately, the administration part of the job keeps me out of the courtroom more than I would like. And exactly. And I'm familiar with that administrative burden because you're, you're essentially a supervisory attorney. Um, but I would think you have to pick and choose at those particular times, you know, what case is so important that you feel like you have to appear yourself? Yeah, well, I mean, we had an eight-year-old little girl lose her life to gang violence this year. And so every time that one of those defendants comes up for court, I show up myself. Okay, all right, great. Thank you so much. And as you talk about the role, you know, something that you really, really wanted to do, um, have there been any big surprises since you've been in office? Big surprise. Uh, I mean, I, uh, I ran a three county race for a three county circuit and halfway through my tenure, it became a two county circuit. So that was a bit of a surprise um, in one way. Um, another surprise, I, I guess, would be um, I didn't realize. Well, let me back up a second. When you're trying a case, there's nothing else that you're focused on but that case. You know, the, you're you're in the room and every little thing matters. So you're just mentally on a, to the nth degree. And there's a level of stress that comes with trying cases that um, you kind of get used to as you're trying your own case, but you don't feel that when someone else is trying a case naturally, because it's not yours. I did not expect how much of the stress and the pressure I feel every time an attorney's in court trying a case, even if it's not mine, because essentially they are all mine. Um, and so I just, I've never had that shared, you know, someone else is trying a case and I feel like I'm in the chair with them um, until I took this job. Okay, yeah. And that's the burden of supervision. I mean, I have the same thing in organizations that I've run. I'm sitting there biting my <laughs> fingernails going, I sure hope she gets that right because <laughs> yeah. you can help, but at a certain point, you know, they're on their own. But, but let me go back just a little bit because I, I want to make sure I say this. While I do show up to court myself uh, and while I do take on some of the burden and the pressure, I could not do this job without the outstanding team that I have. I've been blessed to have such a great level of skill and talent, not just my attorneys, but my investigators, my legal assistants, my victim advocates, everyone's working uh, toward a common goal. And there are days when I can't be here. Uh, and uh, I can't um, be orchestrating things and I don't have to worry about it. I can step away and know that the trains are going to run on time because we have good people. That's, and that's a great feeling to know that you have good people on staff. Brings a um, lot of peace. A lot of it. 
um, as you were taking on this role, I was talking to a friend of mine. This goes back to when you were first sworn in. I was talking to a good friend of mine and we were just discussing some of the challenges that you would face uh, coming in. And my guess was that one of your biggest challenges would be assuring that the staff that you just discussed understood your philosophy of prosecution because, you know, every prosecutor is going to come in with a different perspective. And my friend said that the biggest challenge we're going to have is associated with the complications of being an African-American prosecutor. Which one of us was right? Both of you. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, um, because there are real challenges to this, I, I find that being an African-American prosecutor and, and particularly the first uh, in our circuit um, is that it's a strength, not a weakness. It's a, it's a blessing and not a curse because it allows me uh, to lead an office that has a different perspective. Um, I have no problem saying that at, at one point during my campaign, there were no African-American attorneys uh, on the staff. So uh, by the time I got elected, there was one on staff. And then when I showed up, just, just me showing up, I doubled the diversity in, <laughs> in one fell swoop. Um, but more than that, I brought a staff with me um, of attorneys, not just diverse in their background or their ethnicity, um, but their, their, their actual perspective and life experience. You know, there are prosecutors who come from the same neighborhoods um, as uh, some of these raids happen in. And so that just creates a culture where we understand that we're dealing with human beings. We're not dealing with case files. Um, and so that culture piece and, and kind of the challenge of coming in and bringing a new prosecutorial philosophy, there's a lot of things that we agree on. I agree that if you're shooting people, uh, you need to get out of my community. I agree that if you mess with kids, you need to go to prison. Um, but what I don't agree on is sending people to prison for things that don't require that hefty of a punishment. And so if I can help a young kid keep a felony record um, from staining the rest of his life, I'm going to do it. Um, if there's uh, somebody who gets pulled over and has three grams of marijuana on him, um, I'm going to give him pretrial diversion because I don't want him to lose his scholarship to go to college. You know, that makes sense because at the end of the day, um, my whole goal is for public safety. And the more people who are disenfranchised and get branded with that scarlet letter F at an early age, who aren't working, who aren't getting good jobs or going to schools, um, the more crime we have. And so we're trying to get to the same place. It's how we get there that, that is the challenge. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to um, be able to bring with me a, a level of experience and um, diversity of experience that helps inform the way that we prosecute cases. certainly hope that you enjoyed that interview with our district attorney, uh, Mr. Jared Williams. This was just part one. There is part two where we complete our conversation next week. So please join Local Matters next week to catch the second half of our interview. We'll get into crime. We'll get into the relationship between the district attorney's office and the U.S. Supreme Court as it relates to personal health care decisions and much more.
I close with my favorite Bible verse from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This show is designed to contribute to each of those, giving you the power that comes with knowledge, demonstrating love for your local community, and offering you wisdom for decision-making so that you possess a sound mind when it comes to these topics. Please tune in next Wednesday at 1.30 p.m. here on WKZK, 1600 AM, 103.7 FM, and WKZK.net, because local matters.